Today's episode is sponsored by Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. I don't know the first thing about investing my money, and it is all so overwhelming, I wouldn't even know where to begin. I love that Acorns makes it so easy and how you don't need a lot of money to get started. So head to acorns.com creepers or download the Acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today. Paid non-client endorsement may not be representative of all clients. Tier 1 compensation provided. Compensation provides an incentive to positively promote Acorns. View important disclosures at acorns.com creepers. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. Please consider your objectives, risk tolerance, and Acorns fees before investing. Acorns Advisors LLC, Acorns, is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are provided to clients of Acorns by Acorns Securities LLC. Member FINRA SIPC. For more information, visit acorns.com. This week's sponsor is absolutely perfect for true crime fans, especially those of us that love a twisty, turny murder mystery. June's Journey is a game set in the Roaring Twenties. June's sister Claire and her husband Harry were found dead, and June is certain that they've been murdered. Now she must travel to New York, where her sister's estate was, to look after her niece and solve the mystery of Claire's death. You go along the journey with June, searching for hidden objects in different locations from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris, uncovering hidden clues to solve the mystery as you go. I'm already on chapter six and the mystery has gotten so good. I cannot wait to uncover more clues. I'm also loving how you get to customize your very own luxurious estate island. That's right. Let your imagination run wild as you decorate your island with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. My pool is literally insane. It has a waterfall. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free on iOS and Android. Okay, do you know who really should be answering for their crimes? You because you're drinking a Truly and we already know where that's going to get us. Excuse me, a Truly's. You're drinking a Truly's. I got a Truly's and I got a Diet Coke. Okay, first of all, H-E-B should answer for their crimes for substituting my pack of Diet Cokes that I ordered with Coke Zero, first of all. Okay, way to ruin my night, H-E-B. Second of all, (laughs) this is who should really answer for their crimes. Pants. Yeah, let's talk about your war on pants. Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real life creeps from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mo Gap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. Ah! Okay. You're smiling at me. It's because I'm a Bellini deep. Probably two. You're a Bellini deep. I'm a Truly's deep. <laughs> Truly's. Everyone, Kristen is aware that it's truly without an S, but don't try and change her. Uh, I have declared a war on pants. I recently donated every single pair of pants that I own to a clothing donation. They came by, picked them up. Great. Take those pants. Wait, Except for the you ones, didn't even drop them off. They had to come get them. Because probably you didn't have any pants on to leave the house to donate all your pants. <laughs> what part of... 
I had to order DoorDash to bring me a Diet Coke this afternoon (laughs) makes you think that I would gather my pants up to take them to a location. This is the most first world. Like, I'm embarrassed for us, but it's, it's authentically where we're at. It's, yeah. Okay, my war on pants has significantly improved my life. Oh, tell me more. Just yours, though. Not anyone else in your immediate circle, probably, but continue. I'm happier, therefore the people around me don't have to listen to me complain about pants anymore. That's not true. I'm ranting about (laughs) pants way more than I ever used to now that I realize (laughs) what BS they are. (laughs) I you know, I don't feel the same way. I mean, I want to hear more about this is probably how I'd feel about bras. I think you No, it's how I feel about bras. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, while you will not get in the car to go donate your pants, I'm over here. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, trying to get a third job at, you know it, the one and only, the Waffle House. I went and ate there for their birthday yesterday, and wouldn't you know it, I just couldn't help myself. You went and ate, let me clarify when you, (laughs) let's clarify that, you went and ate there for their birthday. You are talking about there being the Waffle House. Yes. It was was the Waffle House's birthday. Yes. And was I the only person in that establishment that knew that? Probably because not a single soul that worked there knew or cared, (laughs) which was evident. And then you got a little, uh, what do you call it? Oh, yeah. On the spot. Little on the spot interview. Sure did. Yeah. Need to fill out the application. And he is like, I will be looking for your application. He texted me. Gave me the unit number. And I, here's the thing. I have to apply now. He literally told me, I'd put you on the clock right now. (laughs) And I mean, (laughs) there were enough dirty tables in there that I was like, I mean, this is killing me. Like, give me a shirt from the back and like, at least let me do the like final two hours of the shift. It was really killing me. I mean, honestly, too, like all the press they're getting from me, I'm like basically PR firm too. I mean, the amount of people that know what Waffle House is that didn't know before, I can't. Did we think going into this podcast that we would be just one straight giant advertisement for the Waffle House? No. No. If you would have told me that when I was like in the high school bathroom trying to hide changing into my uniform because I was embarrassed at first. And now you're telling me I'd be out here hollering from the rooftops. I don't think so. Well, and I was listening to the mini creep that we dropped today because we dropped a new mini creep today. It's our fifth one, and it is on cults. But at the beginning of the episode, and we had recorded it quite a while back, and at the beginning, we're talking about keeping you out of the Waffle House. And I was like, oh, how the times have changed because now (laughs) she's trying to get her ass back in. I know. When I sat there yesterday morning, I was next to a grumpy old man and he was complaining about something. I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot that this is like, (laughs) he's just sitting there just coughing his raisin toes. Like, he looked over at me after the manager left. He's like, so you're going to work here? And I was like, yeah, maybe. And he's like, well, hopefully you're good for something because nobody else is. And I was like, oh, yeah, Uh this is like all the nostalgia. For me, I would think that those stories are great in hindsight. Like, you're just full of all the good stories from your 10 years at Waffle House. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't want to relive any of them. (laughs) Russell did ask me when I was telling him, he was like, so, because I came home and his eye, I told him his eyes just got real big. And I could tell he was like, how am I going to get her out of this? And he goes, so like, you don't think that would get old really fast or anything? And I was like, no, come on. And he's like, so you don't think like, 
after all this time has passed and you think back on it, you've like put your own spin and twist on it. And I was like, like no. romanticized it a bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, no. And he's like, okay. <laughs> okay. Like, yeah, can't be coming home complaining to this one about it. I mean, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And if you would like to hear that whole story, <laughs> join our Patreon. <laughs> Listen, that episode is good. You should join our Patreon. And here's why. Let me tell you. Because I have burned myself twice wax sealing the cards and decals that you get when you become a patron. And as much as I love it, I have found that that time might come to an end one day. So get it, get it while it's hot, literally. <laughs> so hot wax. If you, would because- <laughs> like, if you would like your thank you card wax sealed, join now while, while MoGab's burned fingers last. Because <laughs> listen, we're about 200 more patrons away from it getting glue stick shut, okay? <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine, but the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pro's custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, Pro's proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. Okay, I have been having the toughest time this weekend. It's Labor Day weekend. I have been having the toughest time getting anything written. I knew what I was gonna do for this week's. Why? Because you're used to Sabrina doing it for you. Shout, Sabrina. <laughs> Maybe so. (laughs) But I knew the case I was going to cover for this week's episode, but I literally stared at a blank page for like two days straight, just like watching that cursor. And I like had the notes all done and I could not get started. And you kept telling me about it. That was my favorite part. I get like screenshots of the blank page. You're like, yeah, got nothing. (laughs) I'm like, all right, feeling good about this. Marco pulled her Saturday and I, I had the laptop on my lap and I'm like, Oh, yeah. By the way, this is what it looks like. It's just a blank (laughs) page. And then I ended that Marco Polo, promptly took a nap, didn't get anything done that week. Then the next day, open up that page. I have the date written, like on blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Send it to her. I have done this much. This is what I've gotten done. So I finally decided I just was not in the right headspace to do that particular story (laughs) justice. So I'm saving it for another time. And I decided that I just needed to do a bit more of a lighthearted murder, if you will. Today, I'm going to tell you the story of Michael Malloy, the man who wouldn't die. Ew, that sounds awful. (laughs) 
Why are you laughing? That sounds terrible. <laughs> it is. It is pretty terrible, actually. Big thanks to an episode of the podcast Criminal, which reminded me of this case, and Leslie, who recommended this case, and to several articles that I will link in the show notes. No, I will link them. I will link them. And to several <laughs> articles that I've already sent Mogab that she will link in the show notes. <laughs> Give credit where credit's due. You have one job to do. <laughs> That's it. All of the sources I used told the same story, but a lot of the details change depending on like what article you read. So 40% accurate is probably about right on this one. But man, is this a story? All right, Mogab. Let's travel back to the Bronx, New York City in July of 1932. Ooh, that's like gangster times, right? You see here? <laughs> yeah, sir. This is the time and place of Guys and Dolls, so everyone is wearing suits and fedoras, and they all look like Frank Sinatra and Marlon Brando. All-time all right. favorite musical. I was also in that musical yes. in high school, freshman year. Because the guy's <sighs> only doing it for some dolls, some dolls, some dolls. It's my favorite. It's so Me too. Fun. I love Guys and Dolls. Ugh. And I love around the fall and Christmas time, Russell mm -hmm. will cook dinner and he'll play. He likes Frank Sinatra, which I find very attractive. And like, yeah. And he's like cooking, and I'm like sitting there on the couch doing nothing. And he's like got a mm. glass of red wine, and Frank Sinatra's on. I'm like, what is mm. my life? I'm in a movie. Mm. You're in a movie. Do you ever picture like a little mouse just following <laughs> around the video camera? <laughs> no, but I should strap one to the back of my dog and just have him like saunter around the house. For <laughs> oh. uh, chowder gets real good footage. <laughs> Prohibition is alive and well. We're a few years into the Great Depression. And Francis Pasqua, Daniel Kreisberg, and Tony Marino were sitting together in The Mermaid, which was the speakeasy that 27-year-old Tony owned, located at 3775 Third Avenue in the Bronx, hidden behind an empty storefront. It's supposed to be a secret. Don't be giving out the address. <laughs> it was a secret 90 years ago. And side note, only one of the sources I used said it was called The Mermaid, but I'm going with it. I love that. Mm -hmm. Back in this time, there were different classes of speakeasies. If you were in an upper class speakeasy, like in Harlem, you'd get a more high quality liquor. But if you were in a hole in the wall dive speakeasy, you were going to get bathtub gin. Stuff that's just not fit for human consumption, but will get you drunk quick. I mean, look, let's not act like we both weren't out here drinking trash can punch at the Dell House or whatever. So I don't know. Uh, and it will get you drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, do you remember when I was so determined to be the designated driver? And so all I did was eat the fruit. And I was so proud of myself because I did not drink prior to college, really. And I fished out all the fruit in my little solo cup and I was snacking all night, all proud. Needless to say, I drove no one home. <laughs> <laughs> you were no one's designated driver. PSA to all the freshmen that are starting their college careers this month. Don't. Don't eat, eat the fruit. fruit. <laughs> God, that was awful. Ugh. <laughs> and no one would mistake the mermaid for a high class speakeasy. It was a pretty squalid place. There were four tables inside. There was a 12-foot bar along one wall, a threadbare sofa against the other wall, and the bathroom was separated from the drinking area by a beaded curtain. I mean, 
say less, you know? (laughs) The one thing Tony did to try and separate his crappy speakeasy from all the other crappy speakeasies was he had a free lunch tray at the end of the bar where he'd lay out oysters, sardines, and different lunch meats. (laughs) This is like the steak lunch at a strip club that I personally firsthand know nothing about, but... yeah. It was a place full of unsavory characters, like most speakeasies, but this group might have been the most unsavory of them all. Francis had introduced a man named Michael Malloy to the bar a while back, and on this day, the group watched Michael finish another glass of Tony's terrible, low-quality, bootlegged whiskey. Like a lot of down-on-their-luck unemployed men in New York City during the Great Depression, every morning, Michael Malloy would show up at the Mermaid, wait for it to open, and then drown his sorrows with drink after drink until he would inevitably be found passed out on the floor. (laughs) Near the oysters or no? He did love the lunch tray, I think. (laughs) I think that's what kept him come back. Lunch tray. (laughs) For a while, Tony had let Michael put his drinks on a tab. He felt like he was a safe risk because he occasionally worked as a janitor in the neighborhood, mostly sweeping floors to pay for a room or for drinks. But due to the Great Depression, he was having a harder time finding odd jobs, and his bar tab started getting bigger and bigger. He wasn't making any payments on it, so Tony had cut off his tab. Michael would still come by the speakeasy, though, because he was usually able to get some of the more affluent customers, which I don't know what they're doing in this place, but he was able to get them to buy him drinks by entertaining them with stories in his thick Irish accent. I don't know that they were necessarily more affluent, just that they could buy a drink. (laughs) (laughs) you know like they could afford one drink you might be right it's all relative i guess right (laughs) so this night in july of 1932 francis pasqua and daniel kreisberg and tony marino they're sitting around a table at the mermaid to talk about how tony's business is doing and tony makes the comment that business is bad he was even starting to worry about going bankrupt He didn't know what to do, and he started complaining about how some of his customers were running up drink tabs, they weren't paying for them, when his good buddy Francis has a brilliant idea, one that would bring in the money they needed and get rid of Michael Malloy, who had kind of become a pester on the bar. Yeah, subtweet, that's what that was. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Francis told him, why don't you take out insurance on Malloy? I can take care of the rest. (gasps) Like a hit. Tony knew exactly what Frank meant because he'd done it before. The year before, Tony had taken out a life insurance policy on a woman. A couple articles said it was a $2,000 policy on a homeless woman he'd befriended. But Simon Reed, who literally wrote the book on this case and was interviewed in the podcast Criminal, he said that it was an $800 policy and it was Tony's girlfriend, Mabel Carlson, that he put this insurance policy on. She was a hairdresser who might have gone by Betty. A lot of articles said different things about her. But basically, Tony waited for a freezing night. He got her drunk, stripped off her clothes, doused her and a mattress with ice water, and Mm. pushed the bed under an open window. Ice water. She died that night, and because of Frank's connections as an undertaker, they were able to get the medical examiner to list the cause of death as bronchial pneumonia, and Tony collected the insurance money. So clearly, Tony's a great guy and mm-hmm. the hero of this story. And basically, when Francis says this, Tony's eyes just kind of turned into dollar signs like in a Looney Tunes cartoon, yep. you know, as he watched Michael Malloy drink his whiskey. 
They all figured it would be really easy money. What's the duck? I forget. Scrooge McDuck, the one that like jumps oh, in the that, pile of- that swims into his money. Yeah. I only know that because we asked, we were doing some like road trip game and I asked Russell like if he could be any cartoon character and he, without pause, was like, Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he's like, don't act like you don't want to swim in that pile of change. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> that's what I'm picturing. <laughs> I only know it because that's like the greatest theme song in theme song history. DuckTales. Woo. What Disney character would you be? Go. I was what obviously Disney? Jasmine. Um, Belle. Hello. The library. I want that library. Library. I know. I was Jasmine, so I could have the tiger, so it's fine. Oh, Raja. Oh, mm-hmm. I do like And Jasmine. I mean, that cute little, that's the only time I'd get to wear crop tops. I, I was walking around here <laughs> no, with Jasmine. No kidding. And the magic A little carpet. less Winnie the Pooh, a little more Jasmine. She does have a genie <laughs> and a magic carpet. So, all right. Yeah. I, I think Jasmine, I think they win. Okay, I'm going to go with Aladdin then. <laughs> well, I'm not making out with you. Uh I'm not going to be Aladdin so I can make out with you. I'm going to be Aladdin so I can get my genie and then I can finally solve the Adnan case. Oh, you're tight ass genie. You're a little monkey. <laughs> you're a little monkey. Abu. They're going to get this insurance policy on Michael Malloy and they figured that it would be really easy money, but they couldn't have been more wrong. Tony told Francis that Michael didn't look like he had much longer to go anyway and he <laughs> looked... He looked at the third member at the table, Daniel, who nodded in agreement. And Daniel later said he only participated in this for the sake of his three kids. But regardless, their plan was set in motion. What, being a role model or just the money? The money. (laughs) Yeah, the money. Damn, Daniel. (laughs) Damn, Daniel. Damn, Daniel. No one knew much about Michael Malloy. People guessed he was around 60, but no one knew for sure. He had immigrated to New York from Ireland in the 1920s for a better life, but he'd never managed to find his American dream. Some places say he'd once been a fireman, but the one thing everyone agrees on is that by this point in his life, he was pretty much drunk all of the time. And he got that way by drinking his days away at the Mermaid. He didn't have any friends or family, so the group knew he wouldn't be missed, and his identity could easily be faked. I hope the mermaid's as cool as I'm picturing in my head, like decor-wise, you know? No, it's not. I described it to you in detail. I know, but it's just not what I want. It's not what I want for this place. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, then change it in your head. Do whatever you want. Francis, who worked as an undertaker and ran a funeral home, said that he'd take care of the insurance policies. He actually just went up to Michael Malloy when he was drunk at the bar and was like, hey, Mike. How about we take a life insurance policy out on you? And Michael's response, according to court records, was, hey, why not? (sighs) And so Michael Malloy signed the papers. And according to Simon Reed, they just got the life insurance policy under the name Michael Malloy. But the policies had to be reviewed by upper management at the insurance companies. And they kicked up some major red flags, like, Why are there multiple policies out on this guy? And why is the beneficiary someone not related to him? Which just makes me think of like the Pam Hupp case where she was able to take out a policy on her friend, murder her the day that the policy went into effect and not raise a single red flag with police. Mm -hmm. And that was like 90 years after this. I know. I was going (laughs) to say, I feel like we've come so far. I know. And that makes me wonder if she had someone at the insurance agency, because remember, she used to work there. 
Oh, she definitely did. Yeah, if there was someone there the like, only looking way. the other way, it has to be. Anyway, those policies ended up getting rejected, but the group didn't give up. They came up with a new plan. They decided to get insurance policies under the name Nicholas Mellory. Nicholas Flamel. <laughs> I was like, oh, I know him. <laughs> Santa. And then once Michael Malloy died, they'd have someone identify his body as Nicholas Mellory and claim the insurance money. Mm. Okay. I see. Mm. Yeah. So Francis paid an acquaintance to come with him to meetings with insurance agents and pretend that he was a florist named Nicholas Mellory. Oh. Yeah. It took Francis five months, and it's believed that he probably had the help of a corrupt insurance agent, but he managed to secure three policies on Nicholas Mellory's life, one at Prudential and the others at Metropolitan. All the plans offered double indemnity. So if his death was the result of an accident, they would get double the payout. So what was Michael Malloy's life worth to this group that later became known as the Murder Trust? The Murder Trust? Yeah. If all went according to plan, they would split $3,576. Stop! Which is about (sighs) $68,000 today. Already, we're splitting it three ways. We're splitting it between Tony, Daniel, and Francis. But then they brought in another guy, a fourth guy, Tony's bartender, Joseph Murphy. Francis recruited him to be the one to identify Michael's body as Nicholas and claim to be his next of kin and beneficiary. But like, what is Michael doing during all of this? He's just still drinking, boozed yes. up with a mermaid. <laughs> yes, yes. Getting on everyone's nerves and now they're plotting to kill him? Yes. A few of the mermaid's regulars were also brought in on the plan, including a petty criminal named John McNally, a guy who had an artificial ear made of wax, nicknamed Tin Ear Smith, and a a guy named Tough Tony Bastoni and his sidekick, (gasps) Joseph Maglioni, which just sounds like (laughs) Dr. Seuss writes the mafia, and I couldn't be more excited about it. (laughs) Say that again. Tough Tough Tony Bastoni and his sidekick, Joseph Maglioni. (laughs) I'm dead. Tough Tony Bastoni. Once they'd brought on enough people to ensure that no one would walk away with very much money, we're talking they'd basically get maybe $6,000 in today's money. They basically waited for Michael to kill himself with alcohol. The first hurdle they had to jump through was to not make Michael suspicious, because for weeks they'd been treating him like a leper, like not wanting him in the bar, and suddenly they were going to switch to just plying him with free drinks, opening up his open bar tab again. (laughs) So Tony came up with the idea to tell him that there was just so much competition from other speakeasies in the area that he was forced to ease up on the rules. So Tony gave him an open-ended tab, and Michael just started throwing the alcohol back And he never stopped. He'd take a shot, put the glass back on the counter and get another shot. Tony's arm got tired of holding the bottle before Michael was done drinking. At first, the murder trust figured that Michael was so weakened by years and years of heavy drinking and that someone in his shape drinking so much whiskey in such a short time couldn't possibly last long. They didn't expect to see him again. But within 24 hours, he was back. And this went on for three days. He would drink continuously, shot after shot after shot, until he literally physically couldn't drink anymore, leave, and then he'd come back the next day refreshed and ready for more. I wish you could guess who I'm picturing, and you can't because you weren't there, but I have video footage 
we were in Charleston and there was this guy giving away shots of moonshine and he was in overalls with no shirt on underneath. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly the image I have in my head. I pictured Hagrid without the beard the whole time. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm seeing that. Or the guy in Guys and Dolls that's like, sit down, sit down, you're rocking the boat. You know that guy? (laughs) Tony would give him complimentary sardine sandwiches, which on one hand, I'm like, gross. But on the other hand, I'm like, Tony, that bread is probably saving his life. (laughs) Tony, don't let him soak it up. (laughs) But a couple articles said that maybe they were hoping he'd choke on his own vomit. Oh, my God, that's awful. They did not get so lucky. After four days, tough Tony Bastoni was getting impatient. He suggested that someone just shoot him in the head. And this just reminds me of the stories that, like, overly complicate the murder plot, you know? Yeah. I saw this TikTok the other day that was like, you know, Harry Potter got real lucky that Voldemort just insists on using magic, you know? Because Harry's, like, completely protected from magic at school. He's completely protected from Voldemort's magic at home. But if he just hired tough Tony Bastoni to show up at number four <laughs> Privet Drive with a Tommy gun or a Molotov cocktail, it would have been a much shorter series. Very true. <laughs> it reminds me of when the bad guy has the person and they get away every time because they're like, I could shoot you right now. But instead, I'm going to tell you all the ways I got you here. And then 30 yes. minutes pass by and he gets away. Still funny. Life doesn't happen biweekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 a day or $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck, and then access your money as you earn it instead of having to wait for it to hit your account. Any money you access, including any optional tips, are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. It is a much-needed alternative to predatory payday lenders for people that find themselves in a bind, like a bill due Wednesday when payday isn't until Friday. Or you're like me and you're just getting slammed with birthdays. Why are all my friends Tauruses? With Earn In, I don't have to worry about being late with a gift because I had to wait for payday. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in Creepers under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Creepers under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. The murder trust thought that shooting Malloy was too obvious. They wanted the double indemnity. They wanted it to look like an accident. So the bartender, Joseph Murphy, who used to be a chemist, he suggested giving Michael shots of wood alcohol instead of the whiskey and gin that they'd been giving him. And wood alcohol is used to make antifreeze, pesticides, paint thinner, certain types of fuel. If a drink contained just 4% wood alcohol, it could cause blindness. Oh, my God. It's like he's drinking like straight acetone. Like this is lighter fluid. Right. This was a huge problem during Prohibition. Because bootleg alcohol was often produced from distilled industrial alcohols. And in fact, by 1929, more than 50,000 people nationwide had died from impure alcohol. So Tony Marino thinks this is a completely brilliant plan. He said he'd give him all the drinks he could want and let him just drink himself to death. Bartender Joseph went and bought a few cans of wood alcohol at a nearby paint store and brought them back to the bar. And the next time Michael came in, He started out with a few shots of cheap whiskey, 
And then when Joseph was fairly certain that he wouldn't be able to tell the difference anymore, he switched him out with the shots tainted with the wood alcohol. Wouldn't be able to tell. I never want to be at that point where I can't tell that I've got wood alcohol in my drink. You know? <laughs> I'm never trying to get I don't there. think you ever will, miss. I'm just going to eat the fruit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. More sangria, please. We've already had like three glasses of sangria. Are you sure you want to get another pitcher? <laughs> yeah. There's no umbrella in this drink. <laughs> they all watched, waiting, as Michael took shot after shot. And he kept asking for more, not knowing that bartender Joseph was serving him wood alcohol. But he showed no physical symptoms other than getting drunk. So then they switched it out again and just started serving him shots of pure wood alcohol. Like literally 100% poison. It's basically like antifreeze in a shot glass. This man has no liver. And like, still, it's been surgically removed, correct? Michael Malloy was fine. <laughs> he raised his glass to them and said it was the best whiskey he'd ever had. Oh, my God. You know what? Be more like Mike. Be like Mike. <laughs> he came back night after night after night, and over and over and over, he'd drink shots of wood alcohol as fast <laughs> as Joseph could pour them. They started challenging him to drinking competitions to get him to drink more wood alcohol. The group could not believe Michael was still unharmed after ingesting so much wood alcohol. Again, yeah, <laughs> it's just poison. Until finally, one night, Michael collapsed to the floor. Francis, the undertaker, knelt down and checked Michael for a pulse. He put his ear up to his mouth and felt that he was still breathing, but his breaths were coming out slow and labored. Francis said he should be dead within an hour. Of course, no one tried to help him. They just waited, watching his chest rise up and down, waiting for it to stop. Finally, Michael took a long, jagged breath, and they figured this was it. His final breath. He would die. They would collect their $2, and everyone would go on with their lives, except for Michael. But instead of dying, Michael began to snore. <gasps> he wasn't dying. He was sleeping it off. <laughs> The group was like, what the hell? How is this guy not oh, dying? No. So some articles said they changed the wood alcohol to turpentine. But then after night of drinking turpentine, they all passed in the same way. So then they replaced the turpentine shots with shots of undiluted horse liniment mixed with a little rat poison. But that okay, still wait, wait. didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I love this. I mean, I hate that they're trying to poison him, but I love that he is not giving in. I know. And I don't want this, but once he's on his back snoring, clearly passed out, why don't they just like tie bricks to his ankles or like shoot him or do you know what I mean? They like, want why? that double indemnity. They want it to an look accident. like an accident. Yes. Okay, well. Well, maybe if they didn't have such a cheap ass insurance policy <laughs> where they're only literally getting two dollars, they wouldn't have to double it if they would have just taken out a real policy. Yeah. One theory I saw floating around the internet about why he wasn't being affected by the poison is that ethanol, which would have been in the bootleg whiskey they were serving him first, it can act as somewhat of an antidote to the methanol served in the wood alcohol, or it can at least stave off the effects of the methanol. Look, save this tutorial for your TikTok. Don't be giving our <laughs> listeners some pointers. It's possible that he wasn't dying because they were getting him so drunk on the whiskey first that they were basically keeping him alive. God. But I don't know how science that is, so <laughs> I just saw it. It was a theory. 
But this whole plan was starting to get way too expensive. All the free drinks, not to mention the monthly premiums on the insurance policies that they were having to pay the longer he stayed alive, were all adding up. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. Tony was worried that his speakeasy was going to go bankrupt. Michael Malloy needed to die soon. So tough Tony Bastoni was once again like, hey, we got guns, we got fists, we can figure this out. <laughs> See? Vin Diesel? <laughs> you? I only have one tough guy voice. <laughs> I know. That was really good then. Oh, thank you. But Francis was like, no, I have an even better idea. We've been practically force feeding this guy poison, but you know what'll work even better? Oysters soaked in poison. Oh, well, that You see, better? Francis knew that Michael loved seafood, and he yeah. thought that if they soaked the oysters in the wood alcohol, that might kill him because his thinking was that if the alcohol and the oysters were taken together, that it would cause acute indigestion. And he said he'd once seen a man die after eating oysters with whiskey. But I think Frank is probably full of crap, much like acute indigestion. I was just about to say, I'm over 30. Don't we all have acute indigestion? <laughs> also, I am concerned about Mike's just like overall gut health now and like <laughs> bathroom schedule. Like, I mean, he's in pain though, right? Like he's vomiting and or just absolutely no. on the toilet like all the time. No, no. he's like living his life I mean, just unreal. being drunk. <laughs> so the murder trust played pinochle while they waited for Michael to die, but he just licked his fingers and asked for more, telling Tony Marino that he should open up a restaurant. <laughs> oh my God, I love it. Do they know that they're the murder trust? Like, did this nickname come later? Or they were It came later. Yeah, it okay. came later. I just didn't know. When they... it made the news, yeah. At this point, it was almost just the principle of the thing to them. <laughs> like, they could not believe that Michael Malloy just would not die. So then bartender Joseph set up the next plan, rotted sardine shrapnel sandwiches. What? Like pieces of metal? Yes. He got a tin of sardines. He let it rot for several days. He like left it out, let it rot. I'm going to vomit. I know. Then he mixed the sardines with shrapnel, shredded tin, carpet tacks, broken glass, and then just mixed it all together, put the mixture on bread and gave it to Michael. And they figured that if the sardines didn't get him, then the shrapnel should. But instead, Michael just finished off the sandwich and asked for another one. It had no impact on him at all. Good for you, Michael, because they are out here truly doing the most. It's terrible. I know. He didn't even seem like it caused him any discomfort. He just ate broken glass, shredded tin, and carpet tacks, and he was fine. Did they do an autopsy on this man? Because I I have a lot of questions. (laughs) They did, but nothing that would explain his impenetrableness. (laughs) His immortality. So the murder trust called an emergency meeting. They could not figure (laughs) out why Michael wasn't dying. They decided that he was obviously a phenomenon of nature and his stomach was cast iron. And they realized that nothing ingested would harm him. So they started thinking of other ways. They thought about hiring a professional hitman, but they looked into it and it was way too expensive. And then Tony Marino brought up that time that he'd killed Mabel Carson slash Betty by soaking her with ice water on a freezing cold night. And they decided to try the same thing with Michael. Yeah, after he's passed out, probably from all this poison. Exactly. So that night after Michael had passed out from drinking, 
Tony and Francis put Michael in the backseat of Francis's car and drove to a nearby park, dragging him through the snow. They laid him behind a bush on the wet snow, stripped off his shirt and poured water on his chest and head. No, my man's not going out like this. Michael never even moved, and Francis and Tony figured that was the last they'd be seeing him. Mm -mm. He'd die of either exposure or hypothermia. So Tony got to work the next day. He went down to the basement of his speakeasy, and I kid you not, as if this was really a Looney Tunes cartoon, Michael was there in the basement, curled up sleeping and half frozen. You can't see it, people, but I'm raising the roof over here. Chuggy as ever, because I knew he's not. I really want him to make it out of this. I know know. he's not, but I'm I'm here for the journey. I I know. Didn't I tell you it's a lighthearted murder? I mean. (laughs) Apparently, he'd gotten cold lying out in the snow with no shirt and soaking wet, so he'd managed to walk the half mile back and talked Joseph the bartender into letting him in, complaining of a wee chill. (laughs) (laughs) The murder trust was frantic. At this point, another month came. It was February and they had to make another payment on the insurance policies and they were getting desperate now. And the petty criminal of the group, John McNally, suggested that they run Michael over with a car. Most of the group thought it was a good idea, but apparently they decided it was going to require cutting another person in on the plan. Would that be considered an accident? Yeah, I guess like a hit and run situation. Yes. So they cut another person in on the plan, a cab driver friend of one of the group, Harry Green, who would get paid $150 for running Michael over. Hmm. So they once again waited for Michael to pass out and then piled into Harry's cab with Michael laying on top of their feet on the floor of the cab. They drove a few blocks away and then tough Tony Bastoni and bartender Joseph Murphy dragged Michael out of the cab and they each grabbed an arm and they held him up, like stretching his arms out as far as they could go. And Harry gunned his engine and everyone braced for impact. And the first try, Harry slammed on his brakes just before hitting him because John Maglioni thought he saw someone watching from a window. So then they tried again, Harry driving 50 miles an hour straight at Michael with tough Tony and bartender Joseph releasing him at the last possible second and jumping out of the way. But Michael managed to jump out of the way as well. Harry tried again. And again, Michael managed to jump out of the way. Have they taken into consideration the money they'll need to fix the vehicle? Because, like, I just feel like they're losing their $5. I, no kidding. With the insurance premiums and then the insurance claim on the car. Exactly. On the third try, Harry managed to hit Michael. And they heard two oh. thuds. Michael's body hitting the hood and then him hitting the ground. And just to make sure that he was really dead, Harry backed up and ran over him again. They were pretty sure that Michael was finally dead. And I don't know what gave them such confidence considering the last several months, but a car passed by and it scared them. So they drove off before confirming if he was actually dead. So the next day, they can't find Michael's body. So they start looking through the newspapers to see if there's any information on any fatal hit and runs. Bartender Joseph starts calling all the morgues and hospitals, pretending to be Nicholas Mellory's brother and looking for him. But they couldn't find anyone with information. And they also didn't see any reports in the newspaper. They read obituaries. They visited morgues. They called hospitals. There was no sign of Michael. Wait, how were they going to, I don't know if Michael had like ID on him, but how were they going to pass 
Once he was hit, how are they going to pass it as this Nicholas guy? That's an excellent question. I don't know why they were calling the hospitals, like right. asking for Nicholas Mellory. My only idea is what you were saying, that they must have like put ID, like they had fake Nicholas Mellory ID that they put in his pockets. Something. Right? And then they're yeah. assuming that he's dead and unable to tell them someone his name. And so when someone picks him up, they find his ID, Nicholas Mellory. That's what I'm thinking they must have thought happened. Because they figured that Michael Malloy was definitely dead, but now they've lost his body and they can't get the insurance payout unless they can <laughs> prove that he's dead. <laughs> I feel so bad laughing, but what a cluster. <laughs> I know. It's easier to laugh when it's been 90 years and like. And why do I feel like he would also appreciate like us really rallying <laughs> agree, around yeah. him, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. So one article said five days passed. Another said two weeks. Either way, at this point, Francis was ready to just kill any drunk that came into the speakeasy and pass them off as Nicholas Mellory. So they actually started canvassing other speakeasies around and looking for someone that looked similar to Michael Malloy. Oh, no. Yeah. So they went into a speakeasy in Harlem and they found a guy named Patrick Murray. Those are the fancy ones, though. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It must Can't have been be a going fancy in there. one. And Tony Marino says that Patrick Murray is the spitting image of Michael Malloy. So they befriend him, they get him drunk, and they bring him back to the mermaid, where they get him totally inebriated. They put him in Harry Green's taxi cab. Then they put him, Patrick Murray, in the middle of the street and run him over with Michael <gasps> Malloy's ID in his pocket, which I'm wondering if it was actually Nicholas Mellory. I don't know. But again, someone oh drives by and they skedaddle again without the body. So now they've killed two men and have lost two bodies. And now they really start to panic. But in actuality, Patrick Murray did not die. He got to the hospital. He recovered from his injuries after about two months. Three weeks later, Michael Malloy walked into the bar, apologizing for his absence. <laughs> he said he'd been in a car accident and he'd woken up in a gutter with a bad headache and a sore shoulder. Oh, Mike. <laughs> Be like Mike. I love him. I'm on record. <laughs> a police officer had seen him and asked his name. And he told him his name was Michael Malloy. And so the police officer took him to a hospital in the Bronx where doctors discovered that he had a concussion and fractured his shoulder. He'd been in the hospital this whole time and the group couldn't find him because he was there under his actual name. And the murder trust was calling looking for him under the name Nicholas Mallory. But he was fine now. And he said he was ready for a drink. My man. The murder trust could absolutely not believe it. They couldn't. At this point, wouldn't you just give up? Like, now you're trying to, like, defy God. Wouldn't you just be like, you know? Yes. They could not believe they decided to center this entire plot over someone who must be a superhero. Like, there was simply no other explanation. He was utterly indestructible. He had survived over 30 attempts on his life. Yeah. He was truly incredible. And, you know, they talked about this in the episode of Criminal that I listened to, but one of the most bizarre parts of this case is that it doesn't seem like Michael Malloy had any idea that any of this was happening to him. He doesn't remember any of it, and he keeps returning to the same speakeasy where every time he goes there, horrible things are happening to him, but he just keeps showing up and showing up with all this gratitude to Tony Marino for all the free drinks and sandwiches and oysters. I mean, he's a golden retriever. He's so loyal. (laughs) Like, that's it. Yes. Like, good for him. Aw, he is. He is. He is a golden retriever. She's like, keeps coming back. <gasps> ball? <laughs> Throw the ball again. You know? Like, that's what I'm picturing. Like, Come yes. on. Oh, what a good boy. <laughs> He's a good boy. 
And so once again, Tony Bastoni is like, let's just get rid of him so we can cash in on this insurance policy. Even if we don't get the double indemnity, like, let's just be through with the whole thing already. And this time, the rest of the group agreed, and they put together their final plot. Couldn't they just cancel the insurance policy? (laughs) That could also be a plan. Like, you know what? Let's just give up. Let's just, he won. 30 times he wins. We lose. But they rented a room in the Bronx that had a gas stove, and they rented it with the name Nicholas Mellory on the lease. And on the night of February 23rd, 1933, seven months after the murder trust first convened, they put the plan into action. They all treated Michael to as many drinks as he could handle, and as usual, he got drunk and passed out. Daniel Kreisberg and bartender Joseph took him to the room and dropped him on the bed. And they turn on the gas. And from what I could tell from pictures of the room, there's like a pipe in the room that you get the gas from. Some articles said it was for a gas light fixture. I'm not really sure. It's nothing I've ever seen before. I don't think it's stuff that we would use now. (laughs) Yeah. But anyways, they put one end of a rubber hose on that pipe and they put the other end of the hose in Michael's mouth and they let the gas Mm. fill him. And finally, after all this time, after 30 attempts on his life, Michael Malloy was dead. The next morning, Francis called in a friend of his, Dr. Frank Manzella, who could write a phony death certificate saying that it was Nicholas Mellory and that he died of pneumonia and noted that alcohol was a contributing factor. All of these friends in very low places. (laughs) For real. Unsavory characters. Then Francis buried him in a plot of land at a cemetery he worked with often. The murder trust had finally done it. They had murdered the impenetrable Michael Malloy. But the Sarasota Herald Tribune said that although he was finally murdered, his last three months were probably his happiest. (laughs) (laughs) And not only that, but Michael would still manage to be the ultimate winner in this story. You see, Mogab, how many people can keep a secret? Oh. Two. But only if... Only if one of them is dead. (laughs) And almost immediately, the murder trust members were suspicious of one another, and they started talking way too much. I was just about to ask how you had all this information. (laughs) And also, things were not going their way with these insurance payouts. They showed up two days after Michael Malloy's death to cash in on the insurance policies, and eventually that would be their undoing. Mm -hmm. They received only $800 from one of the insurance policies, And bartender Joseph and Tony Marino split it between each other and used it to buy a new suit. Oh my God. So Michael Malloy's death. Yeah, Michael Malloy's death went to a new suit for them. Yeah. But I do have a question. Like, was anyone looking and not that this matters, but I was just thinking, like, was anyone trying to get him out of that bar ever? I'm assuming he was just like a lonely, rambling man, but No, he had no friends, no family. When Francis went to the Prudential office to collect the money from the other two policies, the agent surprised him by asking him if they could see the body. And Francis was taken off guard, but he said that the body had already been buried. And this immediately sent up a red flag. There also had been rumors going around because the murder trust was incredibly indiscreet. So Prudential Mm. told Frank that they'd have to do an investigation. And then tough Tony Bastoni started complaining about his share of the cut. And they all start talking about who's going to get the big share of the money once the prudential policies are cashed out. And that turns into an argument, which turns into a physical fight. 
The group ends up taking the fight outside the mermaid, and tough Tony Bastoni ended up getting shot and killed outside the <gasps> speakeasy by his sidekick, Joe Maglioni. Oh, no. Yeah. So the cops showed up and arrested Joe Maglioni and Joseph Murphy, the bartender, as a material witness and hauled them both off to jail. So the cops are now paying very close attention to the mermaid. Oh, this escalated. And one of the regulars, John McNally, started talking and he told them everything. But the police didn't believe him at first because the whole thing seemed so absurd. But McNally told them that he'd been approached to help with the scheme. I mean, does it seem that far-fetched in, like, the 30s, you know? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I feel like this was happening, like, everywhere. Yeah. I think just the fact that he survived all of that is what's far-fetched yeah. about it. Not necessarily, like, the plot. Oh. But the police ended up exhuming Michael's body in May of 1933. And because of the $5 cost of embalming, which is about $80 today, Francis hadn't bothered, which meant that when the medical <laughs> examiner examined the body... It was really easy to see the red flush of carbon monoxide poisoning and to see the poison levels in his system, which proved that he had not died of pneumonia and alcoholism like Dr. Frank Manzetta had put on his death certificate. And also, this was one of the first cases to be investigated by the New York City Medical Examiner's Office. Ooh. Yeah. The remaining members of the murder trust were each charged with first-degree murder. Tony Marino, Francis Pasqua, Daniel Kreisberg, Joseph Murphy, and Harry Green. What about Big Bad Tony Baloney? He's dead. He was shot and killed outside the speakeasy. I know, but I want something on his record. <laughs> Posthum—that word I can't say. Post Posthumously? Post yeah, that. I think, I think is how you say it. The doctor that had written the false death certificate, Dr. Frank Manzella, he was also charged, but I'm not sure what the charges were for him. It wasn't murder. But their trial was held in the Bronx County Courthouse in October of 1933 and lasted over two weeks. By that time, Harry Green, the cab driver, had turned state's witness and had gotten a smaller charge in the murder plot. At trial, the rest of the murder trust tried everything to get out of it. They tried to plead insanity, but that didn't work. So then they started just pointing fingers at each other in the murder, but that didn't work. So finally, they changed their story, and they all tried to pin the murder on tough Tony Bastoni. And I'm like, you should oh, yeah. have started with that, guys. <laughs> yeah, that would have been them. But new. nothing got past the prosecutor, who, side note, the next year would be the prosecutor in the trial of the supposed kidnapper of the Lindbergh baby. The jury deliberated for seven hours and came back with a guilty verdict for all of them. At sentencing, the judge asked them if they had anything to say, and Tony Marino spoke for all of them, saying, We have nothing to say, Your Honor. <laughs> <laughs> Harry Green and Dr. Frank Manzella both went to prison, and on June 4th, 1934, Tony Marino, Dan Kreisberg, and Francis Pasqua were each sent to the electric chair at Sing Sing, where they were killed. So already, it seems more like the plot of a crazy Shakespearean play than an actual real-life murder plot. But that's not the end of the story. Joseph Murphy wasn't with them getting electrocuted because two hours before, he was given a reprieve due to a diagnosis of being mentally unbalanced. Apparently, Joseph Murphy wasn't even his real name. Wait, which one was he? The bartender? The bartender. He'd yeah. been born Archie Mott and had been committed to the Connecticut School for Boys 
until he'd escaped a few years earlier and gotten the job at the Mermaid under the name Joseph Murphy. Oh, my goodness. And I have nothing except one article to prove that that's true, but I am (laughs) (laughs) going to believe it. 40% accurate. But despite his diagnosis as being mentally unstable, he was also sent to the electric chair a month later. Oh. The murder trust took out at least 30 attempts to kill Mike Malloy, but he was resilient. Tales of Mike the Indestructible, Mike the Durable Barfly, Malloy the Mighty, and Iron Mike spread, and he became a legend. Don't forget, be like Mike. I gave him that. Be like Mike. He was buried at Ferncliff Cemetery in Westchester County, New York, where visitors still go and lay flowers on his grave for him. That is the story of Michael Malloy, the man who wouldn't die. Man. (laughs) He was out here eating all the fruit. I needed that story today. Yeah, that was good. All right, here are our shout-outs, MoGab. Our shout-outs for those famous adjacent. If you would like to be famous adjacent, sign up for our Patreon. You get a shout-out at every single level. $5, $7, $10. You get a shout-out. Also, if you have not heard your shout-out, Go on the Patreon and sign up for it in the form. We're going to post another form. Yeah. All the dollars make us holler. So <laughs> here we are hollering your name. Shinius Trader. Shout. K-Dog. Shout out. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> I just wanted to do that. Sister Lindsay Thomas. Jordy. I don't know if there's any other way to say Tiffany. Tiffany M. <laughs> <laughs> that is the only way. Jamie Huffer. She's famous adjacent because she knows the president of Pasadena. Oh, right, right, right. Nikki Rose. Whitney Carpenter. And Joy Cuchilla. We love all of you. Thank you so much. If you have not heard your shout out and you have signed up for it, it's coming. If you have not signed up for it, we have a form on the Patreon. We will post the link again so that all you can see it. And by we, I mean MoGab. So if you don't see it, blame her. Oh, okay. The blame buffet. Shots fired. Hey, peeps and creeps. Thanks so much for listening to our episode. We are so, so grateful and are so appreciative and love you guys so much. And if you have any case suggestions, feedback, or just want to slide in our inbox or DMs, you can email us at creeperspod at gmail.com. All of our socials, also Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, are also at creeperspod. And also, if you would tell your friends, that would be so, so helpful. If you like the podcast, if you don't like the podcast, keep it to yourself. Just don't tell your friends and don't write a review. But if you liked it, it would be really helpful if you write a review. (laughs) Five star, five star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone that's already left us a review. We've had several come in this week that have just made our day. We'd love it if you take a minute and give us a five star rating and a review. Also... We would love it if you would join our Facebook discussion group. We are having a good time in there. It's True Crime Creepers discussion group. Join us. And be sure to follow True Crime Creepers so you'll have our next episode as soon as it drops when I'll tell MoGab another wild story. Bye, peeps and creeps. I need you to say that and you're like Vin Diesel, Tony Baloney, like, give me a little.
And Tony Marino spoke for all of them, saying, We have nothing to say, Your Honor. Okay, uh, good, but a little bit slower. A little bit slower, okay. more drag out. And Tony Marino spoke for all of them, saying, We have nothing to say, Your Honor. I live my life <laughs> for a quarter mile time. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I can't get the scruff. You're embarrassing me. We have nothing to say, Your Honor. There it is. And Tony okay. Marino spoke for them all, saying, We have nothing to say. We have n- Wait. Hang on. You're embarrassing me. You're embarrassing. You're embarrassing me. We have nothing to say, Your Honor. <laughs> All right. <laughs> One of those will be great. Yeah. 